Yes, it is time for questions and answers at tea time. And this is how we normally finish off a uh, 10-day retreat, the last day, just tea time. It's kind of nice for me. I get to relax and just answer questions without preparation. By the way, you know, these talks, giving talks like this, nine talks in a row, uh, it does take battery power, uh, the human kind of battery power. (laughs) But fortunately... uh, I have been at this long enough that uh, there's enough material rattling around in my head that uh, it works out all right. So anyway, it's nice to be at tea time and uh, just answer any questions that have arisen during this time. So, uh, would you like to ask a question? This question's from Scott Benj from Oregon. Uh, he says, Thank you, Ajahn, for this new retreat format. Having access to talks that can be viewed again is quite helpful. And having the morning coffee with Ajahn Sedanto commenting on the previ- previous evening's talk has helped me understand better uh, the teachings. I have grown fond of Brickin over the years and have enjoyed the solitude and natural beauty. One of the highlights has been the leafing out of the aspen trees while we're there. Have the trees leafed out this week? Well, nice to hear from Scott. Um, He has been a regular uh, at these retreats. And I also uh, had a chat with him on uh, Zoom, uh, a retreatant interview. And it's nice that you uh, also mentioned Ajahn Sudanto's uh, coffee times, tea times, and that's uh, a beautiful uh, sync, uh, you know, a, a kind of a synchrony that uh, the two monasteries can work together, Pacific Hermitage and and Birkin, and that somehow we managed to figure it out uh, with our technology how to do this. Um, by the way, so when you see Ajahn Sudanto strangely here at tea time in this very setting, that is magic. That is, uh, that's technological magic. We, we, he's not really here. He's, <laughs> he's at the Pacific Hermitage. <laughs> perhaps we should, uh, perhaps you're not here either. Perhaps I'm not here either. And that would be very Buddhist of me, wouldn't it? <laughs> Where is the Ajahn now? As So, uh, the other question is, uh, are the aspens have the aspens leafed yet? And they have not. And I suspect I, I, every year I try to outguess the aspens, and it turns out that aspens are smarter than Ajansona every single year. <laughs> I make notes in my my little notebooks about the the day of the leafing of the of the of the aspens, and it is a beautiful thing. You go to sleep at night, and this, the forest is full of these white stark poles and in the morning you get up and there's this light Renoir has been there in the night with his watercolors and he's dabbled in the leaves and uh, it starts with the, the the more mature ones the higher leaves they get more sunlight and it works down to the lower ones so it's a very beautiful uh, experience which we we look forward to in the in the 10 day retreats and uh, I'm sure there's a Dhamma lesson in there, 
one thing is the is the uh, aspen trees themselves. It turns out we're we're in an aspen uh, uh, forest here, and it's the after effect of of logging. This place was clear cut at first, uh, and all of the major pine was taken out, and the aspen was left. And I didn't really have a great understanding or appreciation of aspen when we came here, but I've grown to uh, really appreciate it. It's one of the oldest uh, organisms on the planet and one of the largest by mass. And there is one in Colorado, which is said to be the largest single um, biological uh, plant on on the planet. And it could be that they're up to 80,000 years old. It could have survived the last ice age as well. So it's it's very kind of interesting. These are, they're clones, by the way. They're, they don't reproduce by seed. They clone under the ground. They, they're actually all kind of a single organism. And so we're kind of held in the, and you can imagine the fingers being the aspen tree and the, the palm uh, being under the surface. And so we're kind of being held in the palm of this giant aspen being. We must come up with a name for um, for it. Alexander? <laughs> Alexander Aspen? <laughs> Something, but it's very cool. It's very beautiful. And you can feel the, you can feel the spirit of that. And it's beautiful too. This is the human element. You know, we live in a human world, not a scientific world. And I think even scientists are starting to feel that or, or understand that with trees, the communication structures of trees, that they're, they really are responsive beings. And they are, they are also uh, sustaining and welcoming and forming homes for all kinds of other living beings as well. And to have a kind of friendly, appreciative relationship with them. I mean, when we're children in nature... We, we do that. We personalize these things. And, uh, our, but the way we're raised with this sort of scientific materialism often alienates us from nature. And so you have to go back to talking to the trees, <laughs> singing with the trees and um, hugging the trees as well. Don't be afraid to be a tree hugger. It's all right. Leaning against the trees, appreciating their shade. This is all very uh, much Buddhist. Uh, the Buddha himself was uh, appreciative, apparently, of the tree, the Bodhi tree that he sat under during his enlightenment. There's quite a few commentarial sort of folk stories about him just appreciating the tree, just spending some time uh, looking at the tree and kind of thanking the tree for sheltering him and allowing him to get in out of the sun and feel that cool experience, which may have been one of the contributing factors to his awakening. So the forest, the tree, is an integral part of um, Buddhist structures. Nature is as well, and of course one of the great symbols is uh, the lotus flower as well. So we have the images of flowers and trees. So many uh, beautiful things are intrinsic Buddhist uh, symbols. The Buddha also, uh, Ajahn Chah would say that the Buddha was born in the forest 
He was enlightened in the forest. He practiced in the forest. He lived in the forest and he died in the forest. And all of that is, is accurate. He was born, uh, under a tree his 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 mother was going between two kingdoms and so he was born under a tree and then of course his awakening was under a tree and he had practiced for some years in the, in the forest and then after that he remained in the forest for the rest of his life and he died between two uh sal trees so this the forest thing is just very important. And of course, we're called the forest tradition. <laughs> and it's not an accident that I we're, we're here in the middle of this very gigantic, one of the last very large forests in the world in British Columbia. I really uh, feel very fortunate to be in this for, uh, huge forest uh, with very few other people. So thanks for asking about that. What is the name of this monastery, this forest? This monastery is called Sitavana Monastery. And that means cool forest monastery. But uh, if those, those of you who have been here in the winter, you know it really means cold forest monastery. Mm-hmm. Cool is, uh, Sister Mon is cool, I'm cool, the stewards are cool. But the forest is bloody cold. Cool <laughs> also means Nibbana. Cool means Nibbana, exactly. And the other uh, English name uh, is Birkin, which means birch. And you may wonder why we named it birch, since there are no birch here, there's only aspen. Because the original Shack Monastery was actually uh, at a place called Birkin, and there were birch there. You've got to believe me. <laughs> there really were birch there. <laughs> so this is the history of being named after trees and forests and things like this. So I uh, I delight in this, the beautiful immersion in the forest. I'll never get over it. I'm not really cut out for urban environments. I uh, always gravi- gravitate back to the forest. So, uh, very good. Uh, Any other questions? This question is from Joan Benj from Oregon. Venerable, in your first talk on Vedana, feelings, you used the phrase, a sensory dependency of the mind in relation to art. I'm curious about this phrase, idea, about mind having a dependency Does it relate to identity, like maintaining the delusion of self, me, mine, myself? Or is it a dependency or habit or addiction or both or neither? Sorry, I guess I'm just trying to integrate the idea of sensory dependency of the mind. Can you help me? Right. So then we have Joan, which is uh, Scott's uh, wife, and uh, both are in Bend, and they both... I've attended many of the retreats here. So, yes, this uh, dependency on uh, on the sensory world is really, it's not, uh, the self is in, indirectly related to this, but it's really uh, our seeking, it's more related to uh, unsatisfactoriness and impermanence. 
anicca, dukkha. Because to live exclusively in the sensory world, where all of our happiness and well-being depends on contact with the sense objects of sight and sound, smell, taste, touches, and ideas, is a is a fickle um, uh, you know, it's a, the objects are fickle. It's very hard to maintain them and always to get what you want. And it's so, uh, you can't sustain just uh, your happiness just on sights that eventually a sight wears out. You can only stare at a painting for so long or you can only watch a movie for so long. You can only, and then of course uh, music, and you can only listen to it so long and then you, you need to move on to something else. And the pleasure which a sight gave you yesterday may not give it to you today because you've seen it already. It has The novelty has worn off. And so this happens with life and experiences. You're, you become jaded uh, to experience. And then there's a sense of uh, ennui or kind of depression that, that comes over people that, this is the famous uh, the French aristocracy, the children of the aristocracy. They they didn't have to work, and there was this famous ennui, this this kind of jaded. They had lots of money. They tried everything. They ate too much and drank too much and danced too much, and then they became bored. So we have naive ideas about how we would really celebrate our lives. If we had a whole bunch of money, we'd do this and do that. <clears throat> And some of you uh, out there in uh, meditation land actually one day got it, got enough money to do what you wanted and you find out that you can only go to so many restaurants and <laughs> it gets tiring after a while. <laughs> uh, so this is the, uh, the problem of, of depending exclusively on the senses, that that world is shallow, that world is problematic, there's dukkha involved. And is there any alternative? So most people don't even um, intuit that there's any alternative to it. They try to enhance it. So that's sometimes uh, people use drugs or alcohol or various uh, heightened kind of dangerous situations, you know, start bungee jumping and things like that in order to enhance the uh, experience. But uh, the, more you, the more you do this, the more you get used to it. So it's problematic. So this is the, the discovery of meditation and the attempt to go beyond the senses. Um, you have to go beyond the senses. This is actually uh, the word ecstasy really means to be beyond the senses, uh, out of the senses, out of, out of your mind, actually, and the mind of the senses. And so a much more sustainable condition of satisfactory being can be achieved only by actually reducing the sensory stimulus. And that's why we do that. We, we took the eight precepts, and uh, the last three are really... Uh, sensory reductions to abstain from 
singing, dancing, and music, perfumes and adornments, uh, fancy beds and uh, all kinds of uh, uh, entertainments, and and including food at what is called inappropriate times. I did notice a few comments in the uh, when we were the the at the talks uh, the the comment section. What do they call that? The the chat. I I noticed about three quarters of the way down, people started to burst out with their munchy uh, things. They they were missing their munchies in the in the evening, and then various sympathetic listeners would chime in on that. Usually, completely irrelevant to the talk. <laughs> so this uh, this this evening uh, supper thing is quite uh, quite a thing, and some people are. They like to eat six times a day or more. And of course, this is just for the sensory experience. And uh, so if we deprive ourselves of these senses, and that's the nature of monasteries, they're kind of sensory deserts. Uh, what do we, where do we find our satisfaction? And that's why most people don't go to monasteries or retreats. They, it sounds terrifying. <laughs> there's no, there's no fun there. And that's, we, we deliberately reduce your sensory dependencies, your your sensory hits, so that you can discover something. Is there anything when when the senses have been reduced, sense stimulation has been reduced, and you withdraw from the sensory world? Is there anything left? And it turns out, yes, there is a wonderfully rich, a spacious, beautiful uh, function of the mind, which you you can't discover through the senses, but you can only discover by uh, by letting go of the senses and finding out. Now, this is the, the sometimes it's a desert to cross because you can't always just get the the beautiful experience of serenity and ease uh, when you reduce your senses. Sometimes you're just left craving sensory experience. And that's the, that's why you have a sangha, a supportive community and a teacher and so forth to encourage you to persist in crossing this little dry patch, the desert to get to the, the rewards of withdrawal from the sensory experience. It's a form of, uh, where, Humans are all addicted at one level or another to various things. It's only these addictions are, you know, they usually refer to the addictions to strong drugs or drink or uh, overeating and things like this. But uh, everybody has uh, sensory dependencies and addictions that uh, you will go through some sort of uh, form of uh, withdrawal when they're taken away. But eventually you, you can get over your addictions and uh, have them replaced by something that's uh, more beautiful and more sustaining. Only a small pop- portion of the population of this planet will do that. So uh, congratulations if you're one of them who are aspiring and seeking, and this is why you're called a seeker. And it's the, the vast majority, as the Buddha says, go towards the world. They do not find it. And those who go on this path, it's it's an adventure, and it's it's also it, it can be demanding as well. 
but the rewards are great. So that's a bit about uh, sensory dependence. Our next question is from Vancouver, British Columbia. First of all, thank you so much to Ajahn Sona, Ajahn Sudanto, and all those at Birkin and elsewhere who put together this retreat. I really appreciate it. As for my questions, in one of the tea times with Ajahn Sudanto this week, there was a discussion about metta being a great antidote to anger. I'm wondering what you recommend as an antidote to fear. My experience is that metta can also help reduce fear, but I'd love it if you would expand on skillfully working with fear. I'm also curious how you would describe the relationship between anger and fear. I was recently at a presentation by a psychologist who explained them as two sides of the same coin. He said, people who tend to have anger also tend to have underlying fear, and those who struggle with fear likely have issues with anger. I've been wondering if this is accurate. Thank you. Yes, uh, it's a good question. Uh, Fear is uh, one of the forms of... Anxiety is really a form of fear, and it's kind of diffuse fear, which... uh, is uh, we're in the age of anxiety, so it's pervasive. Uh, a substantial portion of the population in North America is on some sort of medications to deal with their anxieties. And it's just the general feeling that, that there's some sort of danger in the environment, and they are right. Uh, life is dangerous. <laughs> but, yeah, and you don't have a choice about that. Life is dangerous, very uncertain, unpredictable, uh, as may I point out that we're in the midst of a worldwide pandemic and, and economic catastrophe. <laughs> How many of you guessed this would be happening in February? <laughs> uh, you probably had all kinds of plans and ideas about what you would be doing at this time, say three or four months ago, you, you had a different vision about what would be happening and look what happened Everything is different now and out of control and weird. So, yes, uh, if you are reliant on circumstances to relieve your sense of fear, then you're going to wait a long time because circumstances are nicely out of control. Now, so that's the roots of anxiety and people are listening to the wrong messages, really. They're... They're listening to messages that are trying to reassure them that things will be all right, that they have fire insurance, that they have health insurance, that they have this insurance and that insurance, and medicine is progressing, and they're going to cure this, and they're going to cure that, and you'll be safe, and you'll be safe, and you'll be safe. <laughs> and that's actually not true. Uh, so what can we do with this? Well, this is what the Buddha really has this nailed down. He says he's, you know, he's living in a much more dangerous world, the fifth century BC, where there's no antibiotics or anything like this. And so he says that you can attain a sense of freedom from fear and anxiety. And by the way, so here's the mudra. This is a mudra, hand mudra. And when you see this, uh, this, this mudra by the Buddha, uh, this means this is the abhaya mudra, the f- no fear, be without fear, the fearless mudra. 
So this is the, the mudra for our time. Uh, the, the age of anxiety needs this mudra, this, this hand just, just, yeah. So abaya, a beautiful word, without fear. And of course, fear and, and anger do go together. One of the reasons why ordinary people need anger, it's, it's kind of an inheritance from our sort of animal evolution Animals need this, like, to go to this energized anger in order to fight uh, or to escape. So they need fear to escape and they need anger to confront. So you have, what is this, this dilemma? Fight or flight. Notice this? Fight or flight. So you either run for it or you fight. So fear is to run and anger is to face it. But what if you don't know which one to do? And by the way, you're set, you kind of like have a little setting where you do one or the other and you really don't like to, do, to get caught in the middle. What is to be caught in the middle between fear and anger is anxiety. It's the inability to decide. And it's a form of doubt as well. So doubt, anger, and fear. Fight or flight or can't decide, <laughs> what should I do? <clears throat> so they are tied together. Anger also is uh, an attempt to empower oneself. Why do we need it? And why are we reluctant to give it up? We feel that we would be defenseless. And this is when we, when we talk about loving kindness and metta, that uh, we say, try to go through the world with metta, but, and it sounds like a good idea, but we don't know how to negotiate for ourselves when somebody won't let us get what we want or somebody wants to manipulate us. We don't have any skills. When we sustain friendliness and ease, we, we don't know what to say in order to protect ourselves. So... Uh, so we, we switch to anger. So why do we switch to anger? It's because we feel that we're not in a state of confidence and power. Anger allows you to say things that you wouldn't normally say. It's an attempt to empower yourself. And why do you need to be empowered? Because you're afraid to say it, because you're too shy, it's not appropriate, you don't like to put yourself forward. So you see the connections there between fear even in shyness and so forth, and the need to to raise this this emotion of anger in order to to express yourself or to push back, etc. So, turns out though, in the end, that none of this is none of this matters. Uh, you don't have to be angry to express yourself. So now we bring in loving kindness because this question was a nicely um, complex question. This is what. How does loving-kindness play in this? Uh, loving-kindness also empowers you. So when you have loving-kindness, you have confidence. You're not afraid. When, you have, when you're not afraid, so you're not afraid. To, so you have a good friend that you want to talk to, and you don't not, you're not afraid of them, and you're allowed to express yourself. And because of that loving-kindness, you, you can say whatever you want, you know? And you don't have to be angry with them to say it, right? So this is... Um, this is something that you need to practice, by the way. And how do you practice it? You rehearse in your mind. 
you you have to because this is what you do anyway. You rehearse lines and emotions, and this is what you when you're in a situation at work or in your social, your domestic life or relationships, intimate relationships. Uh, you you feel like you need to assert yourself and so forth, or somebody is pushing into your territory, and so you go over in your mind. You you uh, you um, you flame you you smoke by night and you flame by day. So you you go over this in your mind. You contemplate. You think if he says if he says that, I'll say this and. He, this, he's unjust, you know, he's not paying attention to my needs and he's always doing this. So you, you, you're rehearsing your emotion and your words. And of course, when the time comes, because you've rehearsed your lines so many times, when the moment in the play comes, when they say that thing, then you say your rehearsed lines with the emotion, accompanying emotion. So how are you going to get out of it? You're going to have to cast yourself as a different character in this play. You're going to say, "Well, what would Gandhi say? <laughs> how would the what would the Buddha say?" The Buddha is not going to rely on anger or any of this stuff. So what would the Buddha say? And what would what would when the Buddha is confronted or people are angry or even insulting towards him, and this happened to the Buddha as well. Uh, how did he respond? And there's a number of stories in the suttas about how he would respond to these uh, people who were very rude and insulting. I believe they call them trolls now. <laughs> troll, yes, trolls, <laughs> a live troll in front of you. So the Buddha, they, they preserve these encounters because they show that the Buddha really didn't react he didn't react negatively he was at ease and he says gives this story about so when somebody he tells this person who's being very insulting to him he says when somebody invites you for a meal and you refuse the invitation who's left with the food so the the one who invited you so when somebody invites you to partake in abuse and you refuse to they get they are left with the anger, the hostility, the abuse, you see. So this is, uh, this is the nature of uh, the relationship. There's fear, there's anger, there's anxiety, that is doubt in between, and then there's metta. And metta is a great and skillful way of uh, coming up with the right words at the right time. Sometimes you don't know what to say. And when you don't know what to say... Uh, Adjust the heart. So the the words actually come out of your heart. They don't come out of your some sort of pre-arranged uh, uh, words because the the situation changes moment by moment. So you or you prepare your heart and you will respond in the right way. You will talk in the right way. You will respond to the situation in the appropriate way, but only by preparing the heart. So that in brief is... Uh, a little answer to that question. Any other questions? This question is from Portland, Oregon. Dear Luang Po, 
Thank you for giving clarity to Vedana Nupasana, contemplation on feelings. Your explanation on how neutral feelings can be perceived as positive or negative feelings was superb. Is this what the Buddha meant in the Satipatthana when he said that ignorance is the underlying tendency associated to neutral feelings? Please, kind sir, provide additional clarification on this point. Thank you, Bhante. Well, neutral is, uh, yeah, the person is kind of stuck at the crossroads. There's an element of doubt there. The people are always seeking positive, uh, positive feelings. And they're they're just simply not uh, uh, satisfied with these negative feelings. They don't know what to do with, or sorry, the neutral feelings. They don't know what to do with them. So that what they call ignorance associated with that is more like uh, almost confusion associated with it. You just don't know what to do with it. It's kind of like being out in a sailboat and the, the wind just dies down, and you're just kind of left. Everything's just you're in the Sargasso Sea, and now what? <laughs> you don't know what to do. You know what sailors do? It's brilliant. They drink. (laughs) This is one thing. By the way, sailing, uh, this is a wonderful thing. You know, who needs an engine? Just go sailing and so forth. But uh, really, once you you anchor, there's not much to do. And uh, sailors drink a lot, uh, even in recreational sailors. There's really... It's really something, if you want to do some proper sailing, you, you should be a meditator because uh, in the evening when you finally anchor in the bay, there's not much to do. So, yes, you can be comfortable with uh, neutral feeling only if you practice, if you have wisdom. So what's the opposite of this ignorance and this confusion around neutral feeling is wisdom. So wisdom is not uh, troubled by neutral feeling. Uh, it appreciates neutral feeling because it's going to get, it's going to withdraw from the sensory experience. It's no longer looking for experience in the sensory world. And when it, when you trust yourself enough, and the mind, and you're not harassing your mind, you know, wanting a sensory experience, the mind, if you wait, the mind comes back to its its uh, intrinsic nature, which is this word pabasara, luminous. You can also, that, that's just one way of talking about it, light. Uh, pabasara means kind of light. So, uh, but you, the Buddha also uses water as a, as a metaphor. The mind is like water. When the hindrances are mixed in, uh, then it, it, is, uh, it can be muddy. But if you can let it alone for long enough the mud sinks to the bottom and it and the the nat- the real nature of water appears and that is it's clean and clear and lucid and very beautiful it returns to its intrinsic nature so this is uh, a little bit about this neutral feeling um and then of course there's we we went through this there's uh, uh, feelings based on on uh, the body, feelings based on the senses. So sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and I and ideas have pleasant, neutral, and painful feelings associated with them. But then there's also spiritual feelings, which is primarily the description of when you withdraw from the sensory world, 
into the, the jhanic. And that always has a positive uh, feeling associated with it. So, yes, uh, next question. Question from Shelley Baxter, my friend. Hi, Shelley, from White Salmon. Ajahn, I have found myself unbidden, laughing at the upsettedness in my mind over stuff I don't like. Maybe it's the after-relief from anger you were referring to when people say they like anger. Can you say more about laughter? It feels pretty good after crankiness. It does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... um, This is what I said about anger, is that some people have the mistaken idea that uh, anger feels good. Uh, Anger doesn't feel good. Uh, but you get it confused with what happens after your when, when the anger goes away. You feel better, and you think, "Oh, the anger made me feel better." No, the anger didn't make you feel better. The absence of the anger made you feel better. <laughs> so sometimes we laugh uh, at our own. Um, uh, afterwards, we can laugh, but that that laugh is a is a form of uh, of relief, actually. So laughter, one of the characteristics of laughter is is relief. And it's sometimes it's associated with the unexpected as well. So when something surprises you, and that's the nature of comedy where the person says something that's inappropriate, you, you expect a certain thing to follow and they say something off to the, and that, that startles you in some way and then you laugh at that. So it's a form of, laughter kind of is, is a form of relief uh, a relief uh, if if something is you think it's fearful, it's going to be dangerous to you, and it turns out not to be, then you, you quite often will be followed with rela- laughter. So laughter is the kind of the after effect of uh, negative, fearful, angry feelings uh, when they when they dissipate. It's very hard to laugh when you're angry, <laughs> or when you're sad, or when you're afraid, etc. You don't. Uh, there is nervous laughter, um, but that is really not very, it's not merriment. It's some sort of, a, it's almost like a cough, etc. So there's not much more to it than that, but the lesson really is, is that why be angry? Why create this pain to begin with? You won't need relief if you don't create the pain. So that's the avoidance. This question is from my friend, uh, Heather Furco from Portland, Oregon. I really appreciate your continued elucidation that this is not a passive practice with the common misunderstanding that it is just sitting and watching. Sometimes when I am sitting, I get into the habit structure that wants to do. Instead of noticing the weeds that pop up in the garden to remove, I feel like I get into striving and looking for the weeds. This may be related to a mild discomfort that arises when positive mind states are present, which I believe is the attachment to something ephemeral. 
This happens even when I am working with the Brahma Viharas, almost as if I am looking for the shadow side. Any encouragements related to this? Also, I feel much gratitude for all of the work that folks have put into helping this retreat happen. It warms the heart to see so many people participating. Yes. Okay. So let's start with that, the end of the question first. And that is, yes, everybody, there's so many people involved in this. I mean, this, this place that we're in and all this equipment and all this, there's, there's just endless dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of people actually uh, involved in this process. It's quite amazing. It's very delightful as well. Um, so yeah, we can't, it's not a, it's not a one-man show at all. It's just a network of, uh, of Sangha and, uh, and uh, the lay community as well. So um, the, the question about being nervous about positive, uh, uh, pleasant states coming up and wondering whether you're actually going to pluck out the weeds of positive, pleasant states is as a result of uh, early meditation abuse. <laughs> you, you, went to, you must have gone to a retreat or read a book that made you very wary about pleasant sensations. <laughs> and that, there's lots of schools out there that are very warning you, don't get attached, don't you get attached to those pleasant things. Oh, those rise and pass away. Those rise and pass away. So that even when you go to loving kindness and everything, they think, now don't get attached. Don't get attached to all that love. <laughs> but that's not, the Buddha is really saying, look, you know, uh, these, those are fortunate attachments. There's, there is a sutta, which the title of which is One Fortunate Attachment. And that one fortunate attachment is the attachment to the meditation itself it's listed as a as a a fruit of the path it's one of the rewards of the of the path you're going to encounter pleasant states based on meditation and it could be the brahma viharas loving kindness compassion sympathetic joy and equanimity uh it could be as a result of uh jhana or it could be just the when the mind is purified and the and the sign of peace has arisen. You, you can be walking around in a kind of a light state of being. And this is a beautiful thing. Don't, don't, don't uh, be afraid of that. So again, the Buddha, uh, at, when he's a bodhisattva, just before his enlightenment, he's doing breath meditation. And he looks at the feeling, this very pleasant feeling he's getting, and he says, this is a, a pleasure not to be afraid of not is not a harmful pleasure so this is uh, something one has to get uh, in the mind not to be suspicious about these pleasant feelings that are arising you bring wisdom to it you understand uh, these do have a transient quality to them but the more the merrier and the longer you're in them the better you have to be in some mood and you got three choices, painful, neutral, or pleasant. <laughs> and you're, the ordinary person is attempting to make the sensory world pleasant all the time. The Buddha says, if we could do it, I would recommend that you did. It's just that it's too fickle. You can't do it. You'll have a much higher 
uh, percentage of success in the in the by cultivating the spiritual world. But don't be overly suspicious of the pleasures of meditation that arise. The ple- this is the not when I say the pleasures of meditation, I really mean the lightness of being which arises. Positive emotions, lightness, joy, ease. These are enlightenment factors. Okay, so let's go to our last question. So this question is from Anonymous from Laguna Niguel, California. Hi, Ajahn. With much gratitude and appreciation with everything that you all have done, when I'm meditating on breath, I find myself talking to myself, verbal fabrications, reminding myself, breathing in mindful of the breath, breathing out mindful of the breath, paying attention to feelings and sensations of the body and talking about them in my head. Is this skillful way of staying with the breath? Also, I started meditating on the 32 body parts, which I found very interesting. I recite the first five forwards and then back and then one at a time and try to get to know them as impermanent, stressful and not self. Is this how it should be? And can you give me more details on how to practice this, please? When we are training ourselves on the foundations of mindfulness, do we practice all four at the same time? It feels like practicing the Noble Eightfold Path, which is not a linear practice. Thank you for taking the time to help me with metta and gratitude. Well, uh, yeah, it's not possible to to practice all of these things simultaneously, and so one should focus. As far as inner conversation going with the breath meditation, uh, one way to begin breath meditation and to get your mind f- focused is to count the breaths. So the the ex- exhalation is just one. This is uh, you just count this to yourself. One. You don't need to count the inhalation. Two. Three. And uh, up to five. So you don't need to go up to 100 or anything. It's just go up to five and drop back. And if you lose your play, so you'll it'll tell you if you're drifting because you'll lose your count. So when you lose your count, you just go back to one and you don't uh, you don't generate any frustration with yourself. All this is is just to help you stay on the breath and also helps you stop the the dialogue and the inner talk that goes with it. So you're you're paying attention just exclusively to the breath. Once you you can do a you know a few of these cycles up to five and then let the counting go and see if you can just stay with the breath. And that the now, what is the purpose of breath meditation? One of the main purposes is it is the solution to excessive discursive activity, which means it helps you stop thinking and talking to yourself. So, yes, talking to yourself while you're breathing is contraindicated, it's not what you should be doing. And the Buddha knows that when he sends monks off to the forest, to spend perhaps the rest of their lives sitting around in little 
cottages or under trees. One of the curses of uh, having a a well-developed brain is that it talks to itself a lot. And how do you get it to stop talking? Uh, You get it this, this breath because it's not a discursive activity. So that the bliss of silence. We also talk about noble silence. And noble silence is not going to a retreat and not talking. Actually, true noble silence is when you stop talking to yourself. <laughs> That's the, the silence of the noble ones. The aria silence is the silence of the mind where it stops its discursive chatter. The next area is the four foundations of mindfulness. Do you pay attention to all of them at once? No. Um, you can go uh, you can reflect on any one at any time. They're all beneficial. And uh, you can change your your focus of meditation to feelings sometimes. And of course, uh, if you stub your toe or something like that, then you will be very much in the Vedana um, as a, a source of attention. What would you be doing then? You would try to pay attention to it as sensation, and then, but, but you'd be watching your emotional reaction to that. You have a painful feeling in your body. How do I feel about the painful feeling in my body? What's my emotional reaction to that? So that's where the attention would go, of course, be caught at first by the pain itself. But then you'd be watching yourself. Uh, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about this thing uh, if, emotionally? So this is the problem with English is that we, we don't have the, we, we, we use the same word for a whole bunch of different things. We, how do you feel about it? So this is the emotional, uh, your reaction to it. That, by the way, that reaction, that emotion to it is called sankara. It, it has volition to it. You are... Uh, actually generating an intention, a decision about this feeling. And uh, it's generating karma. So that's uh, a little bit of, uh, of an answer to that uh, practice question. It's a very large question. You mentioned the whole Eightfold Path. Uh, all I can say is that uh, whenever you deal with any of these meditation uh, factors, path factors, or any of the elements of four foundations of mindfulness, it, from a Buddhist point of view, it's always in the context of the Eightfold Path. And so that's why we first spend lots of time with that Eightfold Path and really go over it, understand what it is we're trying to do. So the Buddha is a wise, great human Because he says, you know, all these little hobbies you have, staring at the stars and measuring things and making uh, uh, your livelihoods and stuff, this uh, is not the, what should we be doing with our time uh, uh, on this earth? We should be trying to solve this problem of the unsatisfactory nature of things that for humans, that's what we should be doing. And that's your main task. And, and how do you do it is, is through the... It's humanly possible to do this, by the way. And in some ways, the Buddha would say it's... And it's not... There's no other way to do it except by human effort, 
human understanding. So that's why we want to just bathe in the Eightfold Path a lot, understand it well, and till it becomes second nature, we, we start to see everything as the problem of suffering and the progress towards the solution to it as the main theme of our lives. Okay, any other questions? So this one's from Joan Benj, uh, also from Oregon. She says, Dear Ajahn Sona, when you said the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind, should not be separated out and used as a meditation technique, I was not quite clear as to why. Is this true for any other part of Satipatthana practice? Also, is there benefit in going through all four foundations in one meditation period? Do you ever use it this way? Thank you. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind, and I, uh, I mentioned that it's not a standalone uh, technique. It's it's not meant to be removed and just practiced as a as unrelated to anything. It's it's always in the context. It's a, it's a sandwich. Uh, it's it's a it's the lettuce in the sandwich. So the body feelings. Lettuce and uh, Dhamma categories. <clears throat> so make sure you always uh, don't don't take the bread off and just eat the lettuce. Uh, then that's called a salad. <laughs> so you're eating a sandwich of the four foundations of mindfulness. I got four ingredients all mixed together, and you won't properly understand the, the role of practicing mindfulness of the mind. Mindfulness of the mind is a an elementary approach to uh, mindfulness of Dhamma categories. It's it's the uh, beginner's practice for the next, uh, what you're going to do on the next page. It's a little like uh, breath meditation where you start by counting the breaths. But it, the whole point of this is not to count breaths. It's to get your mind to settle down and become quiet. And then that's the next, that's the more advanced practice. So the Buddha is uh, is a good teacher. He tries to give you um, uh, exercises that you can approach uh, properly. I would say that the four foundations of mindfulness go from more coarse to subtle. So also he starts with the body, then goes to feelings. These are the most obvious things. And then he goes to the mind but he keeps the mind, he knows that the mind is a vast cloud of, you don't even know where, where to start to understand it or take it apart. or uh, So he, he just starts by dividing it into you know a few different uh, dualities of um, anger or not, greed or not, etc. And then he, then he moves on to uh, more sophisticated teachings where you're, where you're given, so what should I do with anger? What's my duty towards anger? And that's going to be found on the next section, the uh, Dhamma categories under the drop-down menu of the five hindrances. But what the five hindrances are not just standalone meditations either. They've been 
described and your duties towards them have been described under right effort. And so you can't understand four foundations of mindfulness without understanding right effort. And right effort is the detailed instructions about how to deal with all these different emotional states, which ones are to be preserved and deepened and cultivated and which ones are to be removed and prevented. So this is uh, without the information from uh, right effort, you're, you're really going to flounder in, on uh, four foundations of mindfulness. So I suppose you'll have to come back next year for the uh, retreat on uh, right effort. <laughs> no, actually, I have given a retreat, a two-week retreat with 11 talks on right effort, and it happens to be on the YouTube channel. So after this retreat is finished, please feel free to listen from 1 to 11 on the talks on right effort to help inform you about what your duties are to these four foundations of mindfulness. Okay, so I think that's uh, tea time for the end of this retreat. And uh, it's kind of a, it's been a very interesting experience. And who knows, uh, this may be the beginning of a new stage in a lot of, a lot of areas of the world. Uh, I notice that all kinds of people have to communicate now by, by zoom and by Skype and by YouTube and by Google and all this kind of stuff because of the, the pandemic, but, and people might think, you know, that's not, we worked pretty well. So why don't we keep it up? So we'll see how this, uh, how it all plays out in the end. Okay. And uh, thank you to Sister Mon as well for all kinds of support, especially coffee in the morning. <laughs> you 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 don't want to you don't want to hear me without coffee. 